Welcome to the Bike Pack Adventures Podcast. I am your host, Chris Panaski. This podcast was created so as to share the stories of bike tours, bike packers, and endurance cyclists from around the world as they embark on amazing adventures. Through their stories, you'll be able to learn the ins and outs of bike travel. You'll get insight into various countries and cultures around the world, hear fantastic stories of their journeys. Through both mine and my guests' experiences, you'll learn about the pros and cons of specific gear, bikes, and bike setups. If you're new to bike travel and considering going on an adventure, I hope the podcast provides you with that extra little bit of motivation to make it happen. I want to thank Panorama Cycles, Redshift Sports, Restrap, Race Day Fuel, and Brockman Cyclery for supporting Bike Pack Adventures and helping to keep me on the bike. Check out the show notes for more information about these amazing companies. Thanks and keep on pedaling. Welcome to the Bike Tour Adventures podcast. I am your host, Chris Panaski. This podcast was created so as to share the stories of bike tours from around the world as they embark on amazing adventures. Through their stories, you'll be able to learn the ins and outs of bike touring. You'll get insight into various cultures and countries around the world. They'll share fantastic stories of their journey, and through mine and my guest experiences, you'll learn about the pros and cons of specific gear, bikes, and bike setups. If you're new to bike touring and considering going on a tour, I hope the podcast provides you with that extra little bit of motivation to make it happen. If you're already a bike tourer, I hope my guest stories allow you to relive some of your own experiences and give you a good laugh or two along the way. In the meantime, enjoy the show. In this episode of Bike Tour Adventures, I speak with Corey Mortensen about his two-month leave of absence in which he cycled from Minnesota to California. In this story of self-discovery, Corey broke away from society's expectations and embarked on an adventure that forever changed his life's trajectory. After 20 years of adventure and travel, Corey has finally written a memoir on his life-changing adventure, titled The Buddha and the Bee, Biking Through America's Forgotten Roadways on an Accidental Journey of Discovery. Today, we will discuss Corey's new book, how the adventure changed his life, and what compelled him to make such drastic changes to his life in the aftermath. Corey, welcome to the show. Thanks, Chris. Look forward to it. Wonderful. So let's start off with um, who is uh, Corey Mortensen pre-2001? <laughs> pre-2001. Uh, you know, I think I was just pretty much an average working working guy. I was in my 20s and uh, working in an architecture firm um, as a project manager. Uh, I wasn't really satisfied. I wasn't really dissatisfied with life. I knew there was a lot out there. Um, my job did allow me to take some leave of absences. Uh, we could bank our hours, which was really nice. So I would, you know, take off for a week or two and head down to South America or Central America and just kind of backpack around. And um, I knew I wanted that, but I wasn't, uh, I, I guess I wasn't gutsy enough to um, pull the trigger. Additionally, I started buying some houses in Minneapolis and um, flipping them. So I had this additional income on the side that I was making. So yeah, it was it was an okay life. I had everything I didn't need, two cars, two houses, two motorcycles, one girlfriend, and um, you know, and a nice paying job. But uh, you know, there, I knew there was more out there to life. So when this opportunity came, I took it. Okay. So you didn't have two girlfriends just to round out the numbers and stuff? <laughs> no, no. That, was, <laughs> that would have been a bad, bad play. <laughs> um, so were you quite adventurous growing up? You know, I think, I think we were. Uh, my dad was a pilot, so we got to travel a lot. And 
we were pretty independent, all of us kids. We were, I have two little brothers and a little sister. So, you know, we were thrown on airplanes by ourselves. This was back in the days when you could sit up in the cockpit um, and uh, there was a smoking section. So it was a little bit different travel than it is today. Mm. But yeah, we, we were, we would go all over. Dad would throw us in the car and drive around the country or, um, you know, we'd, we'd summer in or have a couple of weeks in Hawaii. And uh, uh, yeah, it was just, we were very, very fortunate um, with my dad's career and, and his, his desire to get out and, you know, explore the deserts of, of the Southwest and stuff like that. Okay. Yeah. Pretty wild. My dad was a private pilot, so I grew up flying around, oh, but great. little airplanes going to like local, um, what do they call them? Flying breakfasts and stuff like that. Yeah. So a long time ago. Um, did you have prior bike touring or bike packing experience, um, before this, uh, this initial adventure? You know, I, I didn't, I, I always enjoyed bicycling. Um, one of my, one of the guys I looked up to when I was 16 is when Greg Lamond, uh, won his first tour to France and, mm. and, uh, and, um, you know, I just thought that was really mesmerizing, but I, I, for as much as I want to be a really competitive athlete or semi-professional athlete, <laughs> I am not, uh, I don't have that mindset. Um, so I just kind of like, like the tinker. So I, I've, I've done a lot. Of, I did a lot of mountain bike races where I kind of came in mid pack, um, or toward the end in most cases, but, uh, and I really enjoyed the camaraderie of cyclists, but I never got into, um, adventure cycling, like long distance wasn't even something on my radar. I didn't even know it existed. So, um, when I did this, I thought I was like breaking all barriers. <laughs> <laughs> and then you kind of figure out that, Oh, lots of other people do this. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's amazing what happens when you leave, leave your front door, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So you, um, prior to your tour, you had uh, done some road bike race across uh, Minnesota, is it? Yeah, it was called the Minnesota Border to Border, and a friend of ours, I, um, some people I used to run marathons with, had told me about it, and it's day one is a two hundred mile road ride um, wow. between. Our team was a three-person team, so it was 200 miles divided by three. And um, it was kind of a tag team relay thing. So you had a swag vehicle that would meet up, and you would bike 10 miles and then switch every 10, five miles, however you wanted to break it up. The second day was another 200 uh, days on the 200 miles on the bike. Uh, the third day was a 50-mile run, again, split up between the three oh, of wow, us. Cool. And then the last day was a 50-mile canoe uh, up to Crane Lake in Canada. Okay. So it started down by Iowa and then we ended up in Canada. So it, it was kind of, it wasn't like a traditional road bike race, but, um, you know, uh, at the time I was doing well. So I decided, you know, what the heck I'll go buy myself a brand new road bike mm -hmm. and, uh, kind of a so multi-sport adventure race kind of thing. Yeah. I think we, we thought we were all going to excel in the running cause we were all marathoners. Um, and uh, I think we excelled in the canoe and biking and not so much in the running. <laughs> oh, interesting. All right. So let's talk about your bike tour. What, uh, what compelled you to drop everything and go on this adventure? You know, I had this, I had this bug. I had planted this seed in my mind so many times about just getting up and going all through my 20s. And I just felt like I had to be responsible and stay and work and, you know, and do what everybody else was doing. And, and, 
and I'm not saying that's wrong or right. I'm just saying it was just a tough, it was just tough for me to like really pull the, pull the bandaid off and take off and, and do what I've been wanting to do. And, and what had happened is, and I had planned on doing this when I was 30. So I had a hard date of 30 because I didn't even think I was going to make it to 30 when I was 18. I thought 30 was, you know, forever uh, from now. Yeah. And I was 31 and my girlfriend and I had broken up and it was a pretty serious relationship. And, uh, you know, and I was kind of down in the dumps and I started, as we all do, found a, another girlfriend quickly and her sister was getting married in Tahoe, uh, California. And so, um, the uh, architecture industry was kind of slowing down at the time in Minneapolis. So, um, I had just asked my boss if I could take a two month leave of absence. And, uh, of course with no training or thought or anything. I just assumed that it would be no problem for me to jump on my bicycle and bike from Minneapolis to California. Yeah, why so, not, right? you know, <laughs> so yeah, I, um, it, it was just kind of a bunch of things all came together and, um, I don't, I don't know if this is the time to talk about it or, or later in the interview, but, uh, when I got to California, I had an interesting discussion with my cousin who, um, talks about uh, Saturn. <laughs> so maybe there was a little bit of the stars involved with this decision as well. Okay. Um, how did you decide on the, the route? Was it quite well planned out? I know 2001 was a little bit different when it came to technology and maps and whatnot. Um, how did you make this uh, plan this out? Yeah, it was um, at first... So you're right. The technology, you got to remember back in those days, this was when we had AOL and dial up. So, you know, getting a map information off the internet was really slow, painful process. Mm -hmm. um, I used the MapQuest a little bit at first, oh, yeah. um, which if you guys remember those long, lengthy word directions, uh, take a left here, take a right there. And it was, <laughs> it was 10 pages just to yeah. go five miles. Um, so at first I did that, but then at the end of the day, I just bought a, um, a map, a Rand, McNa Rand McNally map, and uh, and I bought one for the state I was in. So when I was in Minneapolis, uh, I just grabbed the Minnesota one, and I also grabbed the South Dakota one. Not that you really need one for South Dakota, but I grabbed one for South Dakota as well. And um, those were really what all I had when I started, and I just kind of made it up as I went. I, I, I didn't even start. Originally, I was going to start at my house, and I ended up starting at my dad's, which shaved off about 20 miles. But, um, yeah, leaving his house, I was just like, I think I just got to go west <laughs> until I decide to go south. So very, very poorly. Yeah, very, very poorly thought out. I wouldn't recommend it. I did a big bike tour this summer, and essentially it wasn't much different. I, I looked at Google Maps and said, okay, keep going north on this highway until I get to the end of it. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> people are like, Oh, did you plot it out? Did you have your Garmin going? I'm like, well, I had the Garmin going, but it wasn't following any routes. So it's just recording, you know? Yeah. Well, Chris, isn't there something kind of fun about that though? There was. Yeah. Yeah. Just so, yeah. even when I got to a branch off where I was like, okay, which, which of these rural highways am I going to take through the, the interior of British Columbia? You know, am I going to go on the Cassiar highway or keep following this other highway? And I'd ask people and they're, they're saying, well, you know, if you go this way, there's some more construction or this or that. And I was like, oh, good to know. Something about yeah. that. Yeah, that's great. Did you, uh, did you have a timeline planned for this? I know you took two months off. Did you, did you think you'd do it faster, slower? Was it, was it like liberal or conservative plan? Yeah, that's, I honestly, there wasn't a plan. I just knew I needed to be at the wedding. Um, 
so I was leaving end of September and I needed, I needed to be at the wedding early October. And so I kind of, in the book, you'll read about it. I do a lot of math where I'm like, well, it's 2000 miles roughly. Mm-hmm. If I do about 70 miles a day, you know, that gives me plenty of time to get there. And, um, so, you know, the first day biking a hundred miles, just shy of 98 miles, um, pretty much wiped me out. And then I kind of rethought the whole, can I even bike 75 miles a day? Yeah. Um, I was not in the physical, um, condition to be doing this, but, um, you know, it did it. And then after a while, it, like halfway, all of a sudden the whole trip just turned into something different. And all of a sudden there was no time, like time and days didn't even exist anymore, which was really great. Mm-hmm. I think uh, that's one thing I actually liked about, like it was very real reading that in your book as to how a person's thought process is, you know, cause a lot of people wouldn't put that necessarily in writing, but when I'm writing, I'm thinking, okay, at this pace, I'll get to this town at 1030 in the morning. I should be at this other one by two. Okay. Well, am I going to make it that far? You know, like you're always counting speed versus time uh, and distance and calculating, you know, it's just kind of, at least that's what I do. Like, I don't know if other bike tours do that, but it's always going on in my head. And I'm just always like, all right, am I on track? Am I on my pace? And what am I doing here? Cause I think that's like the, the road cyclist in me or the marathoner in right. me. <laughs> yeah. Let's get this thing over with. Right. Exactly. Um, what I know what your friends, uh, sorry, what your friends and family thought about your, your bike plan. You know, I didn't really tell anybody. My dad knew obviously, um, just cause he was kind of helping me get some last minute supplies, but you know, I didn't really tell many of my friends, um, just because I was afraid that if I didn't make it out, out of the state of Minnesota, they would, you know, give me a hard time for the rest of my life. And, uh, so I kind of kept it on the quiet. As a matter of fact, I didn't write about it in the book, but there was this kind of, at, at one point, one of my uncles invited me, he emailed me and invited me over for a barbecue, like the third day out. And I said, well, I'm biking out to, um, California right now. And he thought I was joking. And he said, well, just show up at five o'clock. <laughs> and this was a constant theme and, and he would constantly email me. And finally, when I got to California, I called him from my cousin's house, his niece. And I said, Steve, I, I did. I, I, I've been biking for the last 30 days across the country. He's like, what? <laughs> so he, he, yeah, so he didn't even know. So it was, I kind of kept it quiet, but I, but I, but I did because we didn't have social media back then. Um, I would just create these giant, massive um, email lists. And I would just CC uh, my day to day whenever I could um, of where I was and, and stuff like that. So people knew. And, and that list just started growing because people would share my emails. And, uh, and then I got all these, all these nice followers, I guess, before you had followers. Mm-hmm. Um, it was really fun. And, and fortunately, my dad saved all the emails, which really helped um, with me to narrate the book because it's it allowed me to kind of relive everything um, in its actual time. Yeah, I was I was wondering that. Like, how do you remember events and things, like specific things that date back nearly 20 years, you know? So I guess that, that would be the uh, secret to that. And I, and I did have a journal that I, I did journal stuff down. Um, so, and then the last part of it is I, just this summer, um, I actually drove I was up in Minneapolis and I drove back to Phoenix and I rode the route on, in my truck and 
<laughs> can't believe I did that. <laughs> <laughs> nice. What kind of bike did you use for this tour? It was a 98 Specialized Allais or Allais. Allais or Allais. Sure yeah, I don't know how you pronounce it. Yeah. Yeah, I had it, uh, you know, again, I wasn't a road bike cyclist. And um, I mentioned this in the book, but, uh, you know, I had the option to buy a two, have two, two chain rings in the front or three. And of course I opted for three because, you know, granny gear uh, to get up a hill. I'm not a hill climber. So you know, I was like, yeah, absolutely. So it was probably one of the few kind of semi race road bikes out there at the time that you could get three rings on the front, on the front front crank. So, but I was glad to have it going over the Rocky mountains. Yeah. I don't think you can get that anymore. I think uh, three no. is kind of hard to get. Yeah. I don't even think you can get it on a mountain bike anymore. No, I have three on mine. <laughs> That's how old my mountain bike is. <laughs> awesome. Uh, what was your setup on the bike? I know, uh, I don't think you had, I'm not sure. Did you have panniers or what was your, what were your bag system set up like? Yeah. So originally it started, um, the idea was that I would just wear my backpack and like I had a 40 liter, uh, backpack and, um, you know, I had all the stuff in it that I didn't need um, in there, and I was going to throw it on my shoulders and whoop-de-doo, I was going to out the door. And all that that idea came because I once saw it in a picture in a outdoor magazine that some dude dude had his backpack on biking across somewhere in Montana or something. And uh, I thought, oh, yeah, that's the way to go. But I also had a Topeak um uh, bike rack that just quick released to the back of my seat. So it didn't have any, it didn't have any support, um, side to side. Right. Um, so you, you had to really cinch it down, but, um, with the rubber elastomer, but it would still, so on that, I put my sleeping bag and, and the tent and then in my backpack. Um, now let's just kind of go back and, and sure. I'm just going to tell your listeners that I, I, this was horribly horribly poorly planned out so my thought was i would bike all day then i had my running clothes and i'd go you know kick out a 5k at the end of the day because you know why not right because i'm i'm gonna do this and then i had a you know three or four books that i was going to read along the way and and uh you know i had one of those manual dictators so i could write down my brilliant thoughts that i was going to come up with along the way so i had all this stuff and, um, and, uh, the first day I just got rid of it all. I just threw it. I had my camping stove. I had all this stuff and my pack weighed about 42 pounds. And, wow. That's heavy. And, uh, yeah, it was my, the first day after the first day, my, I was just shattered. I was a shell of a man, <laughs> but, <laughs> but <laughs> the school was, of hard knocks. A, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, quite a learning experience. I'm glad I did it, but you know, never again. Well, I did like yeah. that. Like how I, I, I remember looking at your day one in the book and by the end of the day, you're at the post office sending stuff to different people across the country, back home to California. And I was like, you know what? This is what I tell people all the time. Like you always pack more than you need. Nobody ever, very few people get it right the first time. And it's okay to send stuff home. You know, like you, you just really exemplified the way packing too much stuff, but it was perfect. You know, like within a day you've realized that 
you didn't keep struggling and pushing with it. You just said, okay, let's get rid of this stuff, you know? Well, you know, it's interesting. I've read a lot of other memoirs, um, similar across country, um, whether it be in the United States or globally. And, um, and it, and it's so fascinating when I, and, and I, you know, I was, I'm guilty of that. You know, when you start out and you're, and you're just, you think you need all this stuff because in 900 miles, you're going to be in the snowy Rocky mountains. So for 900 miles, you're going to carry a sweater and winter, <laughs> winter gear. And you're just like, well, wait a second. You know, I could probably pick some stuff up in Value Village or some, know. some pond or secondhand clothing store. Just get something later. Yeah, you bet. And then once you get off the Rocky mountains, you're back in the desert again. So, you know, that's another 800 miles of hauling winter garb. Um, why would you do that? So, but we all do it. I mean, like you said, it's even just doing a weekend trip to the beach. You know, we put in five pairs of clothes and all we wear is a sarong and a bathing suit for three days. Yeah, absolutely. End of the first day, you were, your back was shattered, not literally, but metaphorically. Um, and you just decided to mail a bunch of stuff off. Uh, where was I? Let me just check. Sorry, lost my chain of thought. Um, Sorry, why don't you talk about your bags again? So you were you had a just your basic strapped onto a floating rear rack that just hooks onto your seat post, and then you had a big backpack. Yeah, and so when I when I when I got rid of everything essentially at the at the post office, everything fit in my back. Right, I could put the tent and the sleeping bag in there, and then I mean, really, all I had left was a pair of uh, Tiva sandals, and you know, I think a couple t-shirts. You know, just literally just enough to like change out of something to be somewhat presentable. If I went to a restaurant after the end of the uh, day of biking, um, I didn't have any second, you know, bike, biking gear. I just had one shirt and one, um, bib, oh, not even bibs. They were the biking shorts. Okay. Uh, so yeah, and one pair of socks. <laughs> um, it was just one, one of everything and, uh, a toothbrush and toothpaste. So th- then I was able to put the pack and, and bungee it to the, the Topeak bike rack um, after that, which nice. that made life so much better. What was it like in the early days of the tours? I mean, that's a big learning process going on there with regards, I don't know, it's different challenges, maybe sunburns. I presume you got a sunburn. I know you got a sunburn. <laughs> sunburn was, I think, the biggest learning experience. I think what I, think what I learned the most about myself was it it was really hard, and and I've read this in other memoirs as well. But it's I, I don't think people talk about it enough. Is the loneliness is to be out there? You know, again, you have to remember this was pre, you know, iPhones. So it's not like I could just text people all the time and you know Facebook and whatever. It was just you're alone. You know, you're out there alone, and um, your only commodity is maybe the the girl at the subway station making you a sandwich. But um, that was the hard part was just being alone in my head for so many hours. Um, And, you know, I could get over the physical stuff. The, you know, the first two days of sitting in the saddle, of course, the saddle source were just tremendous, but um, yeah, just in my head. I, I mean, biking for five hours and just contemplating your own, uh, how are you going to end this? Yeah. <laughs> Let's just stop here and have somebody pick you up. You know, you're just four hours away. It's, it was, that was the hard part. Yeah. I think, uh, I think just mind games. And, um, like you said, early days, you're, you're not trained for it either. So you're just doing this thing. It's the, the, 
the mental wear and tear is probably pretty pretty challenging. Yeah, that, that was definitely the hardest um, part. But it, it was almost like the night where I spend in Sioux Falls, where I kind of, I think I kind of snap, not not negatively but positively, and realize that you know I can do this. Um, that was huge. Like that was that just changed everything in my head. Um, at that point, everything was possible. Um, can I read a little section out of your book on uh, your description of being in a motel and uh, with a sunburn? It's pretty spot on in my estimation of what I feel like at the end of a day. Uh, would you mind if I take yeah, a few seconds? Yeah, that sounds great. All right. So on sure. page 30, he says, I kicked off my shoes, stood up and turned on the TV. Then I peeled off my clothes and entered the shower. Legend had it. They could hear me scream as far down as room number 12 when the water found my chafed and sunburned parts. The bar of soap slipped out of my hands. The effort it would have taken to reach down and grab it up hardly seemed worth it. I rinsed my jersey and shorts, the water black. I felt like I just fought a 12-day battle and it was only day one. Pretty much exactly how I feel when I finally managed to peel myself into that. So the quote is done, but uh, that's exactly how I feel when I get into a hotel on the occasions when I do. Um, it's nasty. The pain of showering. It's uh pretty descriptive and that was your day one right <laughs> <laughs> yeah and then it just went downhill from there <laughs> no yeah that was yeah and it, yeah i i would encourage any cyclist amateur or whatever to go give it a go give a go give yourself a 12-hour day in the saddle and, and go through that um process there's nothing better <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, what were you carrying with regards to uh, spare tools and parts? I know you were a little mal-equipped, um, just to give us a layout of uh, your stuff. Yeah, um, well, you're right. Again, uh, along the lines of poor planning, um, I had uh, no no tool, so I didn't even have a, uh, a multi-tool. In hindsight, I, I just shudder to think about that. Um, I didn't even bring tire irons. <laughs> so, uh, I had four flat, I had four tubes, which I thought was, uh, outrageous amount of tubes. I thought I would never use four tubes over the period of 2000 miles. And, um, and I had my bike pump, which was a Topeak, um, morph bike pump, which to this day I still have, uh, in my nice. back when I go mountain biking, cause it's the most fantastic bike pump in the world. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I, I didn't have any tool. It was, it, it's just, that's almost embarrassing to admit this, but, um, my first flat tire, I, I, that's when I realized that I did not have tire irons. And for all of you who have ever changed a road bike tire with your bare fingers, that is a humdinger of an exercise. Oh yeah, that's tough. So yeah, and it, and it had been, um, years, you know, as a matter of fact, I, yeah, it had to have been years since the last time I even fixed a flat tire. So when I got my first flat, I was like, oh, yeah, how do I do this? And I, you know, I forgot how to, um, you know, to, uh, to dial in the tire correctly. And I pinched my tube, the first one I put in, and it exploded. And, oh, boy, it was uh, all you could do is just sit there and laugh and uh, hope things get better. Yep. Um, so to answer your question, not many tools. Not too much, huh? <laughs> Not and that's like no extra gear shifting cables, nothing like that. No spare brakes. Oh, 
Oh, Chris, I would, I didn't even know that thing, exi- that stuff existed, you know, like, goodness, why would I need cable? The bike was almost brand new. I mean, oh, fair enough. I didn't even bring chain lube. No, <laughs> no, I'm yeah. talking, we're talking amateur hour here. That's funny. Cause that makes me think of my first tour and I, I used a mountain bike and just changed the tires to like more slick tires. Um, I brought chain lube with me, but I was in Indonesia and, but I just didn't really use it and it just get harder and harder to ride. And then finally, when I took the chain off, I could just balance it across my finger and it would stay straight because of the rust that was building up on it. <laughs> so there's something to be said about chain lube. <laughs> <laughs> something, yeah. Even yeah. to this day, I get a lot of grief from my friends that my single speed hasn't been lubed in five years. <laughs> um, what was the general consensus of the people you met along the way when you told them you were cycling from Minnesota to California? I mean, this is really early days in kind of bike touring. It's much more common now, but I think 2001 was not as common. Yeah, I didn't really tell a lot of people as I was biking. You know, my my, my encounters are really brief uh, for the most part. Um, you know, I met a couple of – I actually, as a matter of fact, I only met one person, two people that were biking cross-country. Not the same route, but they were biking cross-country, which kind of – I guess I didn't know what to expect. And I ended up in a bike shop in, in, uh, in Kearney, Nebraska, because I had ripped the tire. Um, so I needed a new tire and, uh, he gave me a quick tune up and we talked a little bit and, you know, he wasn't shocked at all. He said, this is a very common route that uh, cyclists that go cross country to take. And and his store was kind of like a little bit of an oasis in the middle of Nebraska. Um, unfortunately it's no longer in business, but, um, he was awesome. The guy was just a super great guy. He tuned up my bike for virtually no money at all. And, uh, and, um, he, you know, he did comment that I was leaving a little late in the season that people that are, you know, most people going cross country had already come through. Um, another person I met was, uh, a gentleman in, in, uh, in, in Colorado, and well, two guys in Colorado, one was, his name was Don the Gray Fox. That was his road name. I okay. didn't know we had road names, but apparently we all, you kind of get your road name. So he, he was the Gray Fox and he was about 70 something years old. And, uh, he and I went to dinner and we met in, in, um, Estes Park and we had dinner together and he was really just a really fun guy to talk with. And he told me the reason why he was doing it solo. He was doing like four or five peaks of Colorado solo was because nobody in the nursing home would go with him. <laughs> and I thought that was a fantastic line. And then another guy I met, he was from Minnesota actually, and a Dean of Kaufman union, uh, at the university of Minnesota. And, uh, he, uh, he was doing, he had done a bunch of cross country rides and he had came up to me while I was having breakfast someplace. And, and asked me about how I was going to get across Nevada. <laughs> I told him, I said, I'm trying to get across Colorado. I didn't even, I, I couldn't even think about Nevada. <laughs> like that was too far away. Um, and so those were the only two real engagements I had about biking. Other than that, they were just like, just very, very brief, um, you know, people, servers, stuff like that. Fair enough. Um, let me just see where I am here. Yeah, actually, you talked uh, a little bit earlier on. You you talked about the the mindset um, when we were talking about your day one there with all the bags or the heavy bag. Um, was 
Did you, how often uh, throughout the trip or like how recurring was it that you had like doubts towards the ability to finish the ride? I think it was pretty much every 30 minutes for the first three days. Okay. Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, there was, there was times of dread and then there's times of elation and, and, and they would just constantly battle, battle each other. And, and they really didn't drown each other out, but they didn't, you know, there was never a winner. I think the devil and the angel were both on my shoulder mm -hmm. and, and, um, they, they both had a pretty strong argument for either case and, um, little battles started, you know, I, I started making everything a little battle that I would accomplish to kind of, um, give myself self a sense of, you know, victory. But, but even then those, those victories were really short, <laughs> short lived, um, even getting to the border of South Dakota for the first time, mm -hmm. um, well, the first time, the only time, but getting to the border, like a border, I was like, Oh my God, fantastic. I've made it to this border. And I was so excited. And then 10 minutes later, you know, a gust of wind, you know, <laughs> approached me and I was like, Oh, this sucks. I don't want to do this anymore. How many, how many more miles is it to the highway? <laughs> if I could hitchhike a ride or something. Um, so yeah, it was, it was ongoing. And then, and then the third day, I think it was the third or fourth day. Um, it didn't become, it was no longer work. Like for some reason it started off where it was wrong it was work and, and I didn't ever want it to be that way. I thought it was going to be play. I was like, yeah, I get to ride my bike for 30 days. I mean, how fantastic is this? And the, you know, the first three, four days just weren't that way. Then, then after that fourth day, which I kind of talked about earlier in this conversation, it's just, there was a, something that clicked and, and it became more like internally in my head, um, more about me and figuring out who I am and what I can accomplish. And, and yeah, so um, I don't know if I just went on a tangent there or answered your question. No, no, it's uh, it's good. Yeah. So I was going to ask you, like, clearing Minnesota, how was that? How did it feel? But I'm like, like you said, it felt great. But ten minutes later, you're like, oh wait, reality. It's I'm still still riding. It's still windy and. Yeah, very little changes in the in the terrain on these you know on these man made lines on a map, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like. It's like we think we we crossed the crossed the straight line into Colorado, and suddenly we're going to just see Rocky Mountains. But we still have you know three days of bicycling bicycling across the Great Prairie before before we get a glimpse of the mountains. Um, yeah, so it's everything kind of is like I said earlier, time and dates and distances. It's just it all kind of just goes away. It's kind of cool. <laughs> Yeah, it's, there's no sense of urgency. There's no sense of anything, and um, I don't know. You could just like you said, especially really after those first few days, when your body adapts to the the you know the new manner, it's the the new normal. I guess you could say, sit on bike, pedal, turn legs. Once your body adapts to that, the, it all changes, right? Yeah, well, that's your perfect. That's the perfect way to say it. The new normal, and. And it's really great when you, when you can, when you're into that new normal, because it's just a great place to be. Yeah. What was the closest you ever got to quitting? I know you, you talked in, you know, call it, but thought you could call your dad or your brother and stuff. Um. <laughs> yeah, that would have been day three, uh, entering Sioux Falls. I had it all figured out. I mean, I had bought a bus ticket, uh, Greyhound bus ticket. I was going to take the 
Greyhound to Colorado, hang out with my cousin in Boulder, um, figure out the rest on how to get to Tahoe later. Um, you know, I had, I had my bike lock. I was going to bike lock my bike up someplace and give my brother a call and have him pick it up and store it for me. And, and, uh, I mean, I had it all figured out. I actually had a celebratory dinner <laughs> in Sioux Falls. And then, and then, uh, that's kind of one of the things that having this dinner is at this nice steakhouse where I was horribly underdressed. And I was at the bar having a couple of shots of bourbon and a steak. And I was looking in the mirror, looking at all these people coming in and they were all me, right? They were, they were, they were the dockers and golf shirt crowd coming in for happy hour. And I was like, well, I don't want to, I don't want to be part of that still. Right. Like I, 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 I have this opportunity and I have to embrace it. And I really, I really just sat there and, and, looked at them knowing it was a direct reflection of me and how can I, how can I, how can I finally be the person that I've told myself that I at least want to try to be. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. So Sioux Falls was really kind of a, um, that was a big head trip for me, but, uh, and it had nothing to do with the town itself. It just was all the situation, three days of riding this and that. And, and then seeing these, these people who, you know, who, who were, uh, it was the life that I was trying to get away from. And, um, not that it's a bad life. It's just, it was something up, there was something out there more for me. So mm -hmm. yeah, that was the big day. And then after that, I never thought about it again. Amazing. Fantastic. I'm, I'm sure you're glad you, you, you did not get on that bus. Oh, Chris, that would have been the worst thing. I mean, I still would have had a fun adventure, I'm sure. But, uh, yeah, I mean, this whole trip changed the trajectory of my whole life. So, yeah, it, it, uh, you're absolutely, that's the tr truest statement ever made. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have any major uh, breakdowns while riding? You know, um, so that whole thought of only having four flats went horribly awry, of course. So I probably probably could fix a flat tire on a bicycle faster than a pit crew on a NASCAR team. Um, I was getting flat tires like crazy, especially in Colorado with the sandburst. But the only mechanical I had was, um, well, actually two, um, big one was I broke my chain in right at the border of, uh, of Utah and Colorado up by dinosaur. Mm -hmm. And if you look at a map, you'll see that there's nothing out there. And by just some dumb luck, um, some dude in a pickup truck that, I mean, I hadn't seen anybody in it car in hours and some guy like rolled up 15 minutes later and got gave me a, a ride into town at Vernal, which was like 15 miles up the road okay and they had a bike shop so that was you know that was number one i mean again going back to the whole being prepared with tools and stuff i mean why would i ever think it would break a chain right so again amateur um and the other one is i started breaking i broke a spoke in windover um, nevada so just as I crossed the border from Utah to Nevada, I, I decided to do a BMX skid. I don't know why I did this, but I slammed on my brake. My rear, uh, my uh, spoke in my rear wheel pinged and I uh, went out of true for about, about an inch, about a, it was a huge out of true. Like oh, I had wow. to release the quick release on the brake and I, and I rode 200, uh, I rode 109 miles the next day with this wobble, which I thought for sure that the back end was just going to collapse, but 
I tell you what, those engineers on bike wheels, <laughs> there's something. And that bike wheel held up, and then I found a bike shop in the next town. Oh, you got lucky. Yeah, my buddy Adam, he did something like that up in Alaska. Like, he was just popping spokes and ran out of spare. Well, he had spare spokes, ran out of spare spokes. Then he had to start taking some off the front to put on the back. And, like, by the time he got into the city, after, like, 10 days of wilderness, he was there. They're like, I can't believe your bike is still rolling. (laughs) Oh, my God. That's amazing. I will say to any listener who thinks about doing this, do not get fancy don't get wheels with fancy spokes because if you end up in nowhere, Nevada, they're not going to have that spoke. <laughs> so think, think about point. little things like that. If you're yeah, not carrying your own good spokes. Point. What are your thoughts on, I, I call it hitch biking. Um, you know, I guess when, when it necessitate necessitate or when the necessity is there, you have no qualms about throwing your bike in the back of somebody's truck, getting into town. Time for a quick interruption to thank some of the Bike Tour Adventure partners. The Bike Tour Adventures podcast is proud to be partnered with Redshift Sports. Founded in 2013 by a team of mechanical engineers who happen to be avid cyclists, they've been focused on creating components that make a meaningful difference to the riding experience, such as the switch aero system, the shock stop suspension system, and the kitchen sink handlebar system. I've been using the dual position seat post paired with the shock stop stem since 2020 and have nothing but great things to say about their products. Beginning in 2010 with environmental sustainability as the main focal point, Restrap has been in the bag making business for quite some time. Having used a race back since 2021, I find their holster system and magnetic buckles to be extremely effective and truly unique. Named after the animals that roamed the Tibetan plateau, Cheru Endurance Bikes was started by Pierre Arnaud Le Manga in 2009. After noticing a lack of endurance bikes on the market, Pierre used his expertise, know-how, and racing experience to create high-end carbon fiber and titanium bikes for the discerning rider and racer. For discount codes, check out the show notes or go to the Bike Tour Adventures podcast website. Yeah, that happened to me three times and only once out of necessity. So the first time was after Sioux Falls and, and I, it was a horrible headwind of a day. And I had just stopped and got a flat tire, no big deal. I was just kind of enjoying the prairie and and this kid pulls up in an old Pontiac and uh, he's like, dude, get in. And I was like, all right, all right, let's see if the bike fits in the back. And I'm like, I don't even know why I agreed to do it. I'm like, there's no reason for me to even, I can fix my flat, continue on. But I don't know. It just kind of seemed like, you know, um, I think there's a quote. It's like the people don't take trips, trips take people. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and I was like, yeah, okay, man, that sounds great. And he was just a stoned kid. He's probably 20, 21 years old. And, and we listened to like Steve Miller band for about an hour. <laughs> and, uh, and then he just dropped me off in, in Columbus, Nebraska. But, uh, you know, that, I guess that was a, it was just kind of a nice reprieve. It wasn't really needed. Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't know if it took away from the actual, like, can I, can I now say that I didn't bike to California? I don't know. I mean, he saved me about a hundred miles. Um, but, uh, it was, it was kind of fun. And then the second time was later on that day. Um, some guys took me to their trailer home for dinner which got a little weird. Um, and then, uh, then the last one was I actually legitimately tore my tire. Uh, and, um, and this guy, this copy 
a copy machine sales guy, um, threw my bike in the back and gave me a ride to Kearney, Nebraska, which was about 10 miles up the road to get a new tire. Cause I, I mean, otherwise I would have had to hoof it. So everybody was really nice about it. I mean, I don't know if I'd go out of my way to do it, but, um, possibly part of the, back. part of the rationale too behind that is, you know, I think, like you said, we talked about earlier is you, you kind of crave normal interactions, you know, like not talking to the shopkeeper or the subway sandwich lady. And, uh, you know, here's an opportunity to get in a car with somebody and have an hour long conversation and feel great about it. You know, it, there's, you know, what that, that probably is definitely, that was definitely my experience with Mike, the young kid who was, who liked to get stoned, but, um, cause he was a talker. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the other ones, I, I, I think people, and I, I definitely carry this, you know, give this back too. And, you know, when you see a cyclist walking down the side of a road, there's something, you know, there's something safe about it. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you don't really, your guard isn't really up and, or anything like that. And, and so the people that picked me up were, you know, they basically kind of said that, oh, you you have your bicycle, otherwise I wouldn't have picked you up. Oh, okay. Well, thanks. <laughs> that's really nice of you, you know. So, yeah, I think people in their heart want to be good and they want to, I mean, I even do that today when I'm driving down the road and I see a cyclist walking, I'll stop and just to make sure he's got everything or she's got everything that they need, um, you know, especially here in Arizona when it's 109 degrees. Yeah, I, uh, I've i started to make an effort to stop too and just uh, if I have a bottle of water in the car or whatever, give them water or um, just anything, you know. So, same thing. After having done some bigger tours now, I also feel the need to, to give back even at a greater level. Yeah, as a matter of fact, the other about a month ago, I was out doing a, a training ride on the canals out here and I ran into these two kids, probably early 20s. And they were, they were cross country and they had just left San Diego going to uh, Florida. So I rode with them for a while <laughs> and just chatted with them. And I was just like, yeah, that's, well, that's a great accomplishment. And uh, yeah, anyway. That's nice. It's fun to talk to people. You mentioned a sketchy hitchhiking experience. Do you want to talk about that or is it something you want to keep for the book? Um, you know, I'll just say that... Uh, so it started with Mike, who was the young kid who just gave me a ride for no reason whatsoever. And um, I'll admit, I, I, got a, I got a little stoned with him <laughs> in the car. And so I probably wasn't in my best decision-making state of mind when the second hitchhike opportunity came around. And um, it was just these two guys. They seemed friendly enough, and they threw me in the back of their, their hatchback, and they invited me over for dinner. And I don't know if it was – over-exaggeration on my part of what was going on or not, but you know, things got a little uncomfortable <laughs> once we got to the trailer home and, and I was like, well, I think I'm just going to continue on to Grand Island and find a place to camp. So, I mean, it's one of those parts in the book where my wife reads and she cringes. She's like, I can't believe you did something so stupid. <laughs> and then again, she doesn't really, she's not all of that surprised either. <laughs> all right let's go on then uh for those I'll, of us I'll, I'll oh, sorry. There, Chris. i hope that yeah hopefully the readers will enjoy it yeah no exactly i think that's a perfect spot um for those of us that don't know a lot about the u.s and, and this might even be some people in the u.s how is the west different from the east and uh, i'm not even sure if you consider Min- uh, minnesota part of the east or is that more central but how does the country change as you flow from one direction to the other yeah i mean it's 
you know, the West is the West is still. This may sound over exaggerated, but I think the West is still pretty wild. I mean, out east, you, you know, towns aren't too far away from each other. You're not going to go. You don't have to go hours and hours to get to the next town. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've done a couple of cross country rides. Rode from Minneapolis to Colorado once to raise some money for kids with heart congenital heart defect, and you know, I rode across Kansas and. You know, just because there's a dot on the map doesn't mean that there's a town there anymore. You know, these, especially out west. For example, when you leave when you leave Salt Lake City and you go on the interstate because you can bike on the interstate in in Utah and Nevada, since there's really not many ways to get across the states, it's about 120 miles until your next stop, and that's Windover. Oh, wow. So that's a long ways to be out in the middle of nowhere. 200 kilometers almost, something like that. Yeah, yeah. And so the next, and then the next after that was, so then you're in Windover, and the next town is um, Elko, which is 109 miles. So these are massive, (laughs) as you can imagine, massive distances. And, uh, And there's just, there's not like a little quickie mart along the way to get, you know, get gas or water or anything. So even in a car, if you break down, you're, you're pretty remote. Out east, you know, you've got uh, a lot more, I think, roly, roly-poly hills. Um, you know, the towns are, are, more, uh, are a lot more closer in proximity. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think that's the biggest, the biggest thing is the distances. And I don't even even today when I go and living out here in Phoenix, you know, I, I'll go do some gravel rides. And I, I went out and finally bought one of those GPS devices where I could, you know, be tracked sat- by satellite because if something happens to me. Oh, yeah. Um, my wife, can, at least my wife can find me to go get my bike. Like a spot tracker? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I got uh, I can't remember which one I got, but it's it's just nice to have, you know, you go out there and you're in the middle of the desert and um it's nice to have that sense of security. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, I think that's the biggest thing. Other than that, I mean, obviously, it's the terrain is so much different. It's you're you know you're dealing with with uh, a lot more heat, especially in the Southwest. Um, and uh, but you also have those extreme temperatures where it's maybe a hundred degrees during the day and then you know, fifty at night. So um, some big big swings there but mm-hmm. on the upside you don't have all the bugs and mosquitoes and all that stuff that's true i think you i think yeah i think canada's probably the same as us in that regard too because like when you're in ontario or quebec or you know even east um you probably have towns like every 20 25 miles in you know 20 maybe 40 miles if it's a big stretch but when i was out in the prairies it became like 50 miles between towns and then in British Columbia, sometimes, yeah, like you said, it was like 100 miles. Well, yeah, those are some intimidating days. Yeah, definitely. I, I always think this is really interesting in North America. So I, I kind of wanted to ask you, because you mentioned a couple of them in your book, just the town names that we have here in, in Canada and US, we seem to just take them from all over the world. Like I, I've cycled past Kandahar, Saskatchewan this summer, which I thought was hilarious. Um, are there any, any good ones that you know of? Uh, that you covered on your tour or other ones that you want to share? Well, definitely, you know, um, one that sticks out is of course, Gothenburg, um, Nebraska. 
which is a small, which was a small little town in, in Nebraska, part of the Pony Express station um, uh, uh, ride, the Pony Express ride. Um, you know, but you're right, you know, I mean, what, what, what New York used to be, New Amsterdam. Um, I was born in a town called New Prague, New Prague, you know, Prague, um, Czechoslovakia. Yeah, okay. So, you know, um, yeah, I think, you know, you have the immigrants that come over and they create their new, that new town and trying to create the, create the old, bring that old uh, history or uh, experience over with them and uh you know we just added uh, the word new in front of it even to the state of new mexico so, that's right um yeah you know the towns are yeah the towns names some of them definitely lack creativity i find i find the ones that were like there's this one guy who um and forgive me but the name excuse me of the town but he he named two towns after himself so he created a town in Ohio and then he moved out and then he created a town in Nebraska and then he was kicked out. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, it's out West. You have some pretty interesting names and, and the town of Julesburg, I thought was, had a fun story where it was named after a, a, a bandit, a, you know, criminal. Oh yeah. And, oh, cool. uh, the town, yeah. And the town's people, um, it's the, it's the town that I talk about the most evil city in, in the West. And um, just funny how the name came about and how they decided to name it after the bad guy, not the good guy. <laughs> yeah, I think it's uh, it's always interesting to see the towns you go through. That's for sure. And uh, highly recommend bike tours anywhere in North America to really pay attention and see what kind of places you go through because it's pretty interesting. Totally. Um, totally. You had a whole section in your book about taking a dump when on the road. <laughs> <laughs> What what do you do in case of emergency there, Corey? <laughs> Boy, you might have to give up a sock. Uh, as a matter of fact, I was going to come up with a brand of socks, you know, uh, uh, for this book. But um, yeah, that's that's isn't that something? That's a reality, and I don't know why I decided to write about it. But uh, yeah, I think I was kind of just kind of throwing out all the questions that I might have, and so I was trying to like tie that in somewhere in the story because it's real. I mean, it's, you know, we're humans and we eat and then things happen and, uh, and sometimes they happen at the wrong time. And so, you know, when you're, when you're out there in the prairie, you can only hope for a, a clump of trees or something to, to get behind. And, um, and sad, but true. I mean, it's like, what's the last thing you think to put in your camelback or something when you're heading out is, you know, just, Toilet paper. Yeah. Just a little couple squares of toilet paper <laughs> and uh, and an extra plastic bag, you know, for the refuse. But um, yeah, that was, I don't know how deep we want to go into that, but I would highly recommend everybody carry toilet paper, wet wipes, and, uh, and an extra plastic bag for the garbage. There you go. There you have it. Um, I found your story did a really good job portraying uh a time when we weren't also digitally connected, particularly with regards to the events of 9-11. I know this happened right in the middle of your ride. Um, I think you basically rode for a whole day, maybe longer, without really grasping the extent of what happened. Um, do you want to share what your impressions were throughout that time as you kind of pieced everything together? Yeah, that was that was probably the hardest part to write about because 
it's hard to explain to people. Well, first of all, this book is written, you know, 20 years later. So, you know, again, what you just said, we're not socially connected at the time. And so it wasn't like you're getting bombarded by information every 30 seconds. Um, so people have to remember that's kind of where we were in the world technology wise. And, and it was hard because it's impossible to wrap your head around something like that. And especially when somebody, you know, just imagine waking up someday and somebody says, Hey, Chris, you know, uh, they just blew up the Sydney opera house. And you're like, well, you know, that doesn't make sense. And then you have no way to like verify that information. Right. Yeah. So, um, that was our part. And, and so it just didn't seem real. And then again, and then for me, selfishly, that was a big day for me. It was like the day I was biking over the Rocky mountains. So like my head was like, I got to get over these Rocky mountains like somehow. And, and so, and then every once in a while, like every couple of hours, I would run across another group of cyclists or something or motorcyclists and, you know, just chat, chat with them at a rest site area. And, and they would say, oh, yeah, well, this is happening. But some of them didn't even bring it up. So one guy I talked to on the motorcycle, he didn't even, he didn't even make a mention of it. So it's, it didn't seem like it was that big of a deal. Right. And then I, you know, I ran into a, probably 50% of the people I ran into said something about it. And then the other 50% just said, you know, keep going, whatever, you're doing a great job. So it wasn't until that first day I got down into hot Hopper Springs and there was a, somebody had a kiosk um, attached to their truck and it said free beer, terrorists suck. And uh, <laughs> my first priority was to go to the hot springs. So I went to the hot springs and soaked and then I came out and there was a bonfire going on with a bunch of complete strangers around it. And, um, that's where I learned more um, about what happened, but I still hadn't seen it. Um, so it was the next day when I got to uh, to um, the next town in, in Colorado, and uh, I rented a hotel room and then saw it on the television. And even then, even watching it then, I tried to explain this to people, but it was like, you know, Chris, <laughs> growing up in the 70s, you know, we blew everything up on TV, you know, it was airport 77, airport 76, you know, the Concord, all the stuff. So it didn't seem real watching it. It was the phone call that they recorded of a husband talking to his wife. And that's when I, that's when I melted down. Okay. But, um, yeah, that was, that, that's when it hit me really hard. But, um, I will say, and then my dad being a pilot, you know, it was pretty close to home. He had retired by then, but you know, we still knew people who were pilots. But I will say after that day, everywhere I went was, and everywhere I went was like American flags and God bless the USA and all this, you know, everything was like all of a sudden there was this whole different United States mm -hmm. um, from my viewpoint. And, uh, and then I thought the other strange thing was looking up in the sky and not seeing airplanes for three days or whatever it was. From my opinion too, my perspective, I mean, being a Canadian, it's not as close hitting to home but i remember i remember 9-11 i was in college and i went to the canteen to buy a bagel because i hadn't had breakfast and i'm walking past the class and everybody's like crowded through the door looking at the tv so i pause and i'm like the hell's going on and then i just like carry on i'm like oh whatever and i keep walking and i go get the bagel and then as i come by there's more people crowded so i stop and i pause longer i was like holy shit that's world trade center oh okay walk back to class i'm like hey guys do you know what's just happening? And I tell the whole class, and they're like, oh, Chris, you joker. You're always making jokes. And I'm like, no, guys, I'm serious. Like, 
the World Trade Center just collapsed. And then even the teacher was like, okay, Chris, come on, have a seat. <laughs> so wow. it was like people couldn't believe, you know, like even Canadians, like it's, it's not as, like I said, not as close hitting, but you couldn't believe that that would happen. So I think probably part of that too is people didn't talk about it because maybe not everybody really could grasp the extent of what happened, right? Well, Chris, you also bring up a good point, um, which you didn't actually mention, but you know, that's when we were all still very disconnected, right? Yeah. You know, imagine if that was today where we all have our iPhones. I mean, people would have been going crazy. And we yeah. do. <laughs> yeah, and we do. Yeah. Uh, what was it like to cycle across? I, I've yet to cycle across a desert. So what was it like to, to cycle across a desert? And how did you, how did you or did you not prepare for that? Um, you know, it, that probably was my, I was so, I felt like I was, I was such a hardened cyclist by then. Like I was like nothing, I've seen it all, right? I have seen the white elephant. I am, there's nothing could stop me. So it was just kind of one of those things where it's like, well, I got to go a little bit further these couple of days because the towns are a little bit further than typical, right? Um, I didn't really, it really wasn't for a season of a cyclist as I thought it was, I still didn't like bring enough food with me, you know, to cross the salt desert, for example, mm -hmm. it's the great salt, um, from, from Salt Lake city to Windover. I think I had like three Snicker bars and a Gatorade. Um, <laughs> and then I left too late and I ended up having to bike in the dark, which was a uh, kind of a terrifying experience. Um, but yeah. And, and then when I got to Windover, I broke my spoke. So then that's, that was really intimidating. I don't, it was intimidating because I didn't really know what to expect of my rear wheel. Like I really didn't know how strong it was going to be. And, and I will tell you, it was wobbling horribly and you still had to go up these little climbs. So it wasn't like it was just flat across Nevada. It was these long kind of, you know, one mile long climbs up, up to, you know, maybe a thousand feet in elevation and then a long descent. And those descents were worse because the bike would just, it wobble out of control. Yeah. Um, but once I got the wheel fixed in, in Elko, then it was just a game changer. Then it was just kind of like, I'm going to see how fast it'll take me to get to the next town to, you know, to Mount Battle Mountain and then to Winnemucca. And, uh, and those were fun. Those were fun days. You know, I mean, it was just kind of, you just turn your head out, you know, turn your brain off and, and just pedal. And it was, it was fun because they were more like almost like little time trials. Um, but you know, the desert's real and, um, it's hot and there's nothing out there. And if something happens, you know, even on the interstate, there's not a lot of traffic in Nevada. There's another way across Nevada called the loneliest road in the world. Okay. I think it is. And the reason why I didn't take it is because it's called the loneliest road in the world. <laughs> <laughs> I figured if something happened to me out there nobody would find me for days. So I was like, at least on the interstate, they might, you know, they might see my body laying there and somebody might stop. But uh, I would like to bike across the loneliest road in the highway in the world, because I guess that is more of a popular bicycle route. Okay. Nevada. You just have these buzzards flying around you as you're cycling. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Waiting. I hadn't actually planned too many questions with regards to when you hit California and stuff, but maybe you just want to talk to us about how it felt to reach the end of the adventure and anything that happened uh, up, up at that point that I, I failed to, to prep. Yeah. Yeah. So um, getting to California was, you know, the border was, there was a great sense of elation, but um, 
you know, getting to, to Truckee, I, I went to the wedding. Things didn't really work out with the rebound girlfriend, but I had a great time in Truckee with all these people at the wedding party. And they were, you know, they, these were the people, these are the people I needed to meet at the end of this trip. Cause these were the people that weren't the dockers and the golf shirt that I was before. Mm-hmm. These are the people that were living like, you know, they were the ski bums and three months on the mountain. And then they go mountain bike in Moab for three, you know, three months. And, you know, they just almost in my mind, I was like, Oh my God, what are you going to do when you retire? And how are you, you going to afford this? And what about this? And what's about your future? And they didn't have a care in the world. They just like, they were just out there living life and enjoying it, you know, sea kayaking. So they were the, perfect group of people and they were just who I needed to meet. And then my cousin lived right down the street or down the street, about 50 miles down the road. So I went to go visit her and she is just, she's an artist. She's fantastic. And, you know, I, I come pulling in and she had no idea I was biking either. And she's like, what are you doing? And I said, I don't know, Amy. I have no idea what I'm doing. I just felt this really strong urge to, to change. And this is where I talked earlier in the in our conversation about, she was like, well, you're, you're having your Saturn returns. And I said, I have no idea, Amy, what that means. And she said, Corey, when, when you turn 30, typically, you know, in your 30s, 30s, Saturn, the planet Saturn is back where it was when you were born. And it's calling you to make a change in your life. And some people listen to the change and some people don't. And I said, huh, you know, I don't know if I believe in that or not, but makes a lot of sense maybe it's another uh, way of calling like a midlife crisis or early midlife crisis or who knows right yeah just just an opportunity to possibly reinvent you know maybe you're on the right trajectory you know some people call it your bliss you know people people find their bliss and and they they live it you know and some people might have maybe their blisses are short little 10-year segments you know who knows so so yeah when i got to colorado or california i'm sorry and talked to amy about it we sat there and she said, well, are you excited to be almost done with your trip? Cause I was actually going to finish in San Francisco. Um, and I said, no, I'm, I'm actually really depressed. Like I, I really don't want this bike trip to end at all. Like I want to just keep biking for another five years. And, uh, she said, well, let's go, let's go up to the Oregon coast and bike the Oregon coast together. That's cool of her. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> and so, yeah, and then and I because I still had some weeks left on my leave of absence, and so so we did that, and I ended up in San Francisco, and then Carmel, where I had another cousin living, and and uh, that's when I decided I wasn't going to go back to uh, work again. All right, any regrets? No, no, not at all. You know, um, I, I I would say I encourage anybody who who's even got a thought of maybe wanting to know what, what they, what they're possible of doing and you know, what's possible, what's out there. Um, just do it. You know, I mean, <laughs> being the guy that used to be always worried about my future. I mean, I'm not, I'm still worried about my future. Don't get me wrong, but I mean, it's like, um, you know, you can always get a job. You can always make money. Um, and it doesn't matter what part time in your life, I mean, I've met people who are doing this in their 70s. Um, I just had a, a young woman who read my book. She's in her 30s, and uh, she's a very successful programmer for a very high-tech um, computer company. And she's, I just, I follow her on Facebook now, and she's out riding her bike all over the country. And she's just like, you know what? 
I got to go do it. And uh, yeah, I, I don't think you're ever going to regret, you know, adventure. Um, even if you don't, even if it's not, not all adventures are the same, right? Some people like zip lining and some people like uh, maybe taking the train cross country, but either way, it's an adventure. It's something different, something new. Um, what ended up happening with me is I ended up uh, leaving all my stuff in California. Well, not, I'd left my bicycle in California and um, hitchhiked down to Mexico and ended up camping on the beach in Mexico for a night and then ended up in Mexico city. <laughs> and about eight months later, I was in Antarctica running a marathon and you were where back, sold my, I went down to Antarctica to run a marathon. No shit. So okay. I, I backpacked all the way through South America for about eight months and then, um, and then came back, sold, I had another house. I sold it and went to Europe and, uh, went to Iceland for three weeks, backpacked down from Scotland to England uh, ran with the bulls in, in Spain, followed the tour to France in 2002 and, uh, ended up in Southeast Asia or Southeast and East Europe. And then, uh, my uncle called me and asked me to help him with something in furniture. And I started a business, you know, two months later and then sold it. <laughs> so, oh, wow. Yeah. So life's an adventure. That's and you amazing. never know what's going to happen. So let's end off this part on the book. Uh, I wanted to say there's two things I really liked, uh, that you did in your book. And one was, and I think you mentioned that you were looking at how to incorporate these into the story, but explaining basics on bike maintenance, like, you know, you talked about tire levers and, and through your own errors too, and to explain to people what they need to know. And like I said, it usually related to how you didn't have the appropriate tools or, um, and I also liked how you included a lot of little historical stories about the places you were visiting. It was pretty neat to, to read these blurbs and learn about the region. So I really actually enjoyed that part of the story. I want to also read one more quote, and I think it ties into this end of the conversation part, um, by Don Kingston. What would you call him? The Gray Fox or the Gray, gray Wolf? Or? This is a different Oh, it's Don. a different Don. No. Okay. So, this yeah, was yeah. by Don is, Kingston. Yeah, yeah. And, and just to kind of, yeah, go ahead. No, Sorry. you go ahead. I, well, just to introduce who Don was, Don was a guy who was in his 70s um, who, I, when I first started running marathons, he would run, he was in a running group and, uh, he was one of the only 70 year old men I knew who had earrings for the coolest cats in town. So really, really loved Ron. Yeah. So you had a quote here that I really liked and, and I think it encompasses exactly how this changed your trajectory. Uh, and he said, Corey, my wife and I married in 1949 and our plan was to travel around Europe for six months. As a wedding gift, my aunt gave us $2,000, which was a tremendous amount of money at the time. We decided to take the money and put down a payment on a house, telling ourselves we'd go to Europe on our first anniversary. Our first anniversary arrived and we opted to buy furniture for the house, telling ourselves we would go to Europe the next year. He paused and looked at me. Corey, I'm 74 years old and I've never been to Europe. Like, What does that quote mean to you, actually? Why don't you tell you us? I mean, everything. It was just you know, get off your butt and do it. Right. It was, it was, he, he didn't, let me tell you, he lived a life. I mean, he, he did a lot with his life. He just never made it to Europe. And you know, that was his dream. I just think we all sit there and say tomorrow, right. I mean, this is, this is nothing new. It's just, we all do it. We find ourselves in a funk. We're comfortable where we're at, but uh, you know, we all say we're going to do something. And then we, all of a sudden we turn 74 and we've not never, never done it. Um, unfortunately Don passed away, but, uh, 
I, I had one of those dreams in my head where I would buy him a ticket to Europe um, if I if I could. <laughs> but mm-hmm. uh, I I just I think that sums it up right there. I mean, he didn't have to say another word. It's like he just basically looked at me and in between the lines said, get, get on your bike and go, man. Yeah. I think it, it's really clear and it's it's something I've heard from so many older, older, older than me, people that have gone into bike touring and just saying, you know, they didn't want to live with that regret. They're already in their 50s or 60s or whatever. And they said, you know, you got to do it. Don't, don't wait. Yeah. You don't have to do 100 miles a day, you know? I mean, well, that's for sure. You can go out and do 10, 20. Uh, my, my, uh, my uncle's father in law is 90 years old, and that guy has ridden cross country, I think, three times. He's ridden, he's run 50 marathons. He's still out there walking, you know? He's 90. Wow. It's fantastic. Yeah. What was your longest day on the bike? Uh, that would have been Salt Lake City to Windover, for sure. Um, it was a late start, and, uh, yeah, I, I I think I mentioned this in the book a few times. Again, no cell phones, so I didn't have a clock. I didn't have a watch. So I just kind of assumed what time it was <laughs> when I would leave. And I left a little late in the day that day. And when I got to about, I think it was about 20 or 30 miles outside a window where the sun set, so it was pitch black, no moon. And to, so that just added to the length of it, right, because I couldn't see anything and I didn't have a headlamp. And, of course uh, you <laughs> and yeah, of course I did. <laughs> Are we surprised? Um, and then that's when I uh, I had my hallucinations of being chased by aliens. So you know the stress level was high. Uh, I'm hallucinating. There's little aliens chasing me, and it's pitch black, and I'm uh, and all I can see is the glow of this town of of uh, Windover behind the behind the mountains, and I'm just like singing songs in my head over and over again, just trying to like calm myself and, and get there. And uh, that was, that was the longest day on the bike. That was the longest day in miles. And that was the longest mental, like just a mental exhaustion. Uh-huh. Day. I ended up spending two days in window for after that. Day. Oh, did you? Yeah. I need a break. Stay at the red garter for $39 a night. So, <laughs> okay. Uh, what was your father's um, opinion before the bike tour and how did that did or did it change and if so how did it change in the aftermath of the tour you know he he was one of those he was very protective but not overprotective like he never he never would say don't do it he would just kind of pause and look at me and say why why are you doing this like why are you jumping out of an airplane you know um and uh he and I just didn't really think the same, but we had a respect for each other for sure. I mean, he, he, he never would ever tell me not to do something that I wanted to do. And that's, it was maybe illegal, but he was, he was supportive in that way. And I always knew that, I mean, I could be out in the middle of the desert. I knew that he would, he would drive three days to come pick me up. Okay. The kind of guy he was, um, he did write me a nice email when I got to Nebraska. Um, and, uh, you know, just a little note that said, you know, I'm really impressed that you've made it that far and I'm really proud of you. And that's, that was a huge, you know, pump in the arm, um, for that. Um, other than that, when I left for Salt Lake city and I left them two messages and one was when I was leaving Salt Lake city that said, dad, I'm biking on salt to salt. I'm biking to Wendover. I'm on I 
I think it was I-70. I can't remember the interstate, sorry. Uh, I'm on the north side. I'm wearing a red jersey. I have a yellow backpack on my bike. So if, if you're looking for my body, it's probably going to be on the north side of the highway. And if I don't call you by 11 o'clock tonight, that means I didn't make it. And I'm sure that was not the voicemail you wanted to hear. But, uh, <laughs> um, but I did get the window over. I called him. He did not answer the phone. And I said, I made it. <laughs> that was it. So, But yeah, he was, he was really, he was always there. Um, and it's funny reading the emails back because I continued the emails as I traveled around the world. And, uh, you know, just, I didn't realize how much banter he and I had. So he was always there, you know, like mm -hmm. uh, ran out of money in Chile and uh, the banks, you know, shut down or whatever. And he was there to help, you know, Western Union money to me and stuff like that. So it was, it, it's really looking back, I have fond memories of it now. Um, unfortunately, he passed away about 10 years ago. So, um, I don't get to share all this stuff with him, but it was, it was good. Sorry for your loss, but I guess that's, that's how the world works, right? How life works. It is. Uh, sounds like he was. That's why we bike. That's right. Uh, how did you afford to keep traveling um, after the bike tour? And how did you make money? Yeah, um, that's a good question. So I was telling you back in the day when I was a Dockers and golf shirt guy, I had bought a house in North Minneapolis, Northeast Minneapolis. And at the time it wasn't a really popular place, but about six months later it became the place to be. So I just kind of got really lucky on that. So I bought a house, gutted it and uh, held on to it. And then my neighbor, she was selling her house, which was a, a diamond in the rough. And so I lowballed her on it and bought that and fixed it up. So I had these two pretty nice pieces of property um, and I had rental income coming in. So I sold one and, you know, walked away with a good chunk of money. So that's kind of how it all started. And I still was fine. I was financially fine when I came back. So after I got to Antarctica, I decided to come back to the United States to, um, sell my second house. And, uh, because I had fallen in love with somebody and I was going to go marry her and live in Perth, Australia or something. And, uh, so I came home and the market was super hot. So my house sold like in three weeks. It was crazy. And uh, so I took that money and then that's kind of what I lived off of. And then when I started my business, that's what I used to, that was the seed money to start my business. Okay. And what do you do now? Are you retired or? Well, no. Um, so yeah, I grew the business and the year that I sold it, I um, got married to, to my awesome wife and uh, we moved to Dallas for two years was my contract and she is a lawyer. And um, so after the two years were up, we decided to, if you can imagine, we sold everything we owned and uh, went down to South America for almost two years and traveled around and volunteered and backpacked and came home. And I ended up getting a job as a consultant with a fitness company. And she is now the chief legal officer for a, uh, uh, a company in the, in the legal industry. Awesome. And so we decided to settle down here and, and, uh, live, enjoy Phoenix and, and plan out our next adventure. <laughs> All right. So that's what I was going to ask now that you have a family and I think you have kids as well, or are those your nieces? Those uh, are my nieces. Okay. Yeah. Do, no, we have no kids. Do you guys still travel as much as you did before? You know, because of COVID we don't, for work we were traveling quite a bit and, and we, and, uh, so the last couple of years, you know, we were doing a lot of travel, obviously this year with COVID it, it changed and it's actually been 
um, it's, it's been really kind of nice to be a homebody. Like, you know, I was on the road two weeks out of the month, every month. Oh, no way. And she wow. was, yeah. And she was traveling quite a bit as well. And so, you know, it's, it's, this whole COVID thing has really helped us kind of slow down. Um, our wardrobe has gotten smaller and, uh, and, uh, all that stuff. But, um, yeah, I think we definitely, um, you know, she told me, she told me this week, she's like, next Christmas, we're going someplace. And I think she wants to go to Banff. <laughs> I said, that sounds like a great plan to me, baby. Nice. So, you know, but I don't think we'll do like a year, year at a time travel, but we'll definitely, um, you know, go, you know, six months at a time or uh-huh. something, you know, to locations. Cause you got to get in there and enjoy that culture. Especially now in the post-COVID era, I think a lot of work opportunities will be able to be done remotely. Like they won't necessarily be that need to be sitting in an office. So if you could relocate yeah. to Banff and ski and hike and work from home, that would be pretty cool. And then go home when you need to. <laughs> That'd be awesome. <laughs> uh, is there anything I missed that you'd like to talk about? No, Chris, I think this was really a fun uh, interview and I, Really uh, want to thank you for your thoughtful questions. No um, problem. Yeah, really appreciate appreciate those. I think that uh, I think you nailed everything. I hope I hope if anything, if people walk away with anything, and it doesn't have to be on a bicycle, but I really hope that people who have been out there thinking about doing something, whether it's a train ride across the you know the Canadian North up to Churchill to go see the, the polar bears or uh, you know, or a trip to Brazil or, you know, somewhere Southeast Asia, just do it, just go and do it. And there's a lot of opportunities out there. And, and, uh, yeah, I think, I hope that's the takeaway. I hope, I hope so too. There's a lot of, yeah. 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 And I want to apologize that it took so long to get this interview to happen. I know you sent me the book months ago and, uh, well, COVID has been a strange year. So, um, it definitely, you know, all the challenges of daily life have made it hard to, to get motivated to, to, plug through things. So I'm glad we finally got this done. For sure, Chris. And I, I have been enjoying your podcast as well. Oh, I, I really enjoyed the two women in Europe who biked uh, with their parents would come visit them. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Eva and Mari, Mari, I think. Eva and Mari. Yeah. <laughs> Those two were awesome. Where can, uh, where can people find you online if they want to follow along on your adventures or buy your book? Sure. Um, well, the book can be found on Amazon. Uh, or my website is www.thebuddhaandthebee.com um, or coreymortensen.com, C-O-R-Y-M-O-R-T-E-N-S-E-N.com. Um, and then I'm also on Facebook. I'm not as active on Facebook and Instagram as I should be, but, um, you know, I try. I've got a... I've got a fun little video going now. If you want to watch, I've convinced my nieces that they can grow boulders from rocks. So they're out there growing. They water the rocks in our front yard and you know, (laughs) they're growing a boulder. (laughs) So if you want to watch a boulder grow, join us. Nice. We should put that on a 24 hour stream and just let it keep going. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if we do that, then they won't, then you'll see me come out there and replace the little rock with bigger rocks. Fair enough. Uh, (laughs) Oh, I wanted to ask you one last thing. How did you, um, come across the name or decide on the name, the Buddha and the bee? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. You know, I was really struggling with the name of the book and, um, you know, a lot of times things just kind of come your way. Right. And I was out hiking and I was kind of throwing words together, kind of a, uh, 
you know, jumble them around and, and, um, somehow my wife and I were talking about putting a Buddha in our backyard for by the pool. And, and, uh, I was like, yeah, and there's a bee or something. Like, it was all kind of just kind of like Buddha and the bee just kind of, boy, that's, there's, everybody likes Buddhas, right? And like everybody, bees are good, right? They pollinate. And so I kind of, I Googled it and, and I saw this quote in the beginning of the book, um, the, the quotes in the beginning of the book. And I was like, oh my gosh, I mean, this quote is the, you know, basically another, you know, part of what this, what this book is about. And, you know, basically the quote is, let me just pull it up here. I apologize. I have it right here if you want me to read it. Oh, do you? Yeah. Um, do you want to read it? You can go for it if you have it. Okay. Uh, the quote is by the Buddha and it says, as a bee gathering nectar does not harm or disturb the color and fragrance of the flower, so do the wise move through the world. And I'm not saying that I'm the wise, but I think we all are wise. And I think we should all move through the world, you know, gathering and bettering ourselves without disturbing everything around us, right? Negatively mm -hmm. in any way. So leave no trace, right? Go out, enjoy nature. Just leave your footprint. You know, that's, that's, that's kind of how I felt like this journey was for me. It was like, I didn't really take up space. I didn't really add anything to society during the time, but I gained and I learned and I feel like I walked away a better person. And now that better person can help other people. Fantastic. All right. Well, Corey, I'm going to end that recording right here. Thank you for your time and uh, wishing you the best with the book sales and uh, continued adventures. Thank you, Chris. Wonderful talking with you. You too. Hey everyone, before we end this podcast, I'd like to tell you about some of Bike Tour Adventures' other amazing partners. I'm very proud to be supported by Brockton Cyclery, a Toronto-based bike shop dedicated to bike touring and bikepacking. Carrying many of the top bike touring and bikepacking brands, I can honestly say that they have helped me to build the most durable and fast bikepacking bike possible. We're also supported by Race Day Fuel. Their mission is to ensure that you consume the very best and appropriate food and beverage for the task at hand. Working with top brands such as Scratch, Noon, and Untapped, they have all your nutrition needs taken care of. For discount codes, check out the show notes or go to the Bike Tour Adventures website. I want to end the show by thanking all my listeners once again for the emails and comments I've received from you. It really motivates me to keep going with this project and to share people's amazing stories. If you do have comments or questions, you can email me at info at biketouradventures.com or go to www.biketouradventures.com and shoot me a message through the contact form. You can also check out the webpage for past podcast episodes, blog posts, videos, and my new touring tips page. The touring tips page is the perfect place to go if you're new to bike touring and if you're looking for helpful tips to get started. On top of that, the Touring Talk podcast episodes have now been integrated into the Touring Tips section, allowing you to listen or read on whatever topics you'd like. If you are enjoying this show and like what I'm doing, you can become one of my show supporters by going to www.patreon.com slash biketouradventures. And for just a few dollars a month, you can help keep this show going. You can also help out by sending a one-time donation to www.gofundme.com slash f slash bike-tour-adventures. This money will go back into the podcast, allowing me to pay for all the associated annual fees, purchase better quality equipment, and keep producing good quality content. Much appreciated, and keep on peddling.
Bye-bye. I want to end the show by thanking all my listeners once again for the emails and comments I regularly receive from you. It really helps motivate me and keep me going with this project and to continue sharing people's amazing stories. If you have questions or comments, you can email me at bike at bikepackadventures.ca or go to bikepackadventures.ca and shoot me a message through the contact form. You can also check out the webpage for past podcast episodes, bikepacking routes throughout Canada, blog posts, videos, and touring tips. Lastly, I'd like to once again thank all the individuals and companies that are supporting the podcast. If you are enjoying the show and like what I'm doing, you can become one of my show supporters by going to patreon.com slash bikepackadventures. And for just a few dollars a month, you can help keep this show going. You can also help out by sending a one-time donation through PayPal. This money all goes back into the podcast, help me to cover the costs associated with running the show, buy new equipment when necessary, and produce the high-quality content that you've become accustomed to. Much appreciated, and keep on pedaling.